Welcome to The Classical Corner, a new podcast brought to you by myself, Davina Clark, where I will delve into the secrets behind classical music and take you on a journey through some of the most inspired and beautiful works ever written. Throughout this series, I shall be joined by a selection of remarkable and talented musicians. Not only will we discuss our love for music, but I shall also discover the thoughts and processes behind my illustrious guests and what makes them the top of their game in the classical music field. So, come and join me in the Classical Corner. Today on the Classical Corner, I am going to be joined by the incredibly talented, very tall, bass member of the King Singers, Jonathan Howard. The King Singers have been entertaining audiences all over the world for over half a century. Their musical versatility, exceptional craftsmanship and unique charm has resulted in them being recognised as ambassadors for musical excellence all over the world. With Grammy and Emmy Awards under their belt, a place in Gramophone's Hall of Fame and features on over 60 albums, it is no wonder that they are one of the most well-loved and admired a cappella vocal ensembles in the world. So, without further ado, I welcome Johnny Howard. Hello. Hello. Hi, Johnny. How are you? I am very well. I, as I just said to you before we started, I'm wearing a shirt today, which feels really funny. I haven't worn a proper collared shirt since before lockdown. So I, this feels remarkably formal, although not that I'm trying to aid the formality, but I feel like I'm dressed up. It's like going out for a Saturday evening. It's just that we're doing it. Over Zoom, what's that? Exactly. Yes, we're having a date in. We've both got our drinks. You are on what? Sauvignon Blanc? Yes, I am actually on exactly that Sauvignon Blanc right now. And I am on a gin and tonic, of course. So, I thought before we get started, our listeners might like to know a little bit about you and how you came to become a core member of the internationally acclaimed a cappella group, The King Singers, at the bright young age of just 23, taking over from bass Stephen Connolly, if I'm not mistaken. You are not mistaken at all. Um, I haven't. This is this is a terrible thing to say on a a podcast, a, sort of full of brilliant musicians who have all been devoted to their craft for their whole lives. I I sort of became a musician professionally by accident, which isn't to say <laughs> which is which isn't to say that I haven't loved being a musician my whole life. And I think going by the Malcolm Gladwell theory of ten thousand hours, I definitely done my ten thousand hours. It wasn't as though I was. Um, I'm sort of some weird um, charlatan who hasn't done their time, but I um, had just sung and played instruments my whole life and loved it and made so many friends through it. And when I graduated from university, I, I got a job in advertising, which in London pays nothing. I mean, less than peanuts. And one of the few ways to make money in London, as I'm sure you know, is, is to sing as a dep in churches around around the city when, when you're on an advertising salary, and then you make, you know, £50 here, £80 yeah. there, in cash for a Sunday's work. And so I was doing a lot of depping the year after I graduated. Um, and in that year, the guy, Stephen Connolly, who'd been the base in the King's League for 23 years, announced he was leaving. And they, they sort of look from within England initially to find someone who might be a good replacement. Um, we're not exclusively bound to England. It's just from the point of view of things like visas, it makes life much more easy if you're organising the same thing for everyone. It's you only know, you know, like you know very well. Uh, and I think I was in, I was in the right place at the right time. I'd, I got a, a wonderful big recommendation from my former director of music, Edward Higginbottom, who's a real sort of, 
He's a sort of a legend and a taskmaster, but also a great ally for me and a real supporter. And I'm incredibly grateful mm-hmm. to him. And he recommended me to the group when the group got in touch with him, asking if they if he knew anyone that might be appropriate for this job. So I um, unexpectedly got an email. I think initially from him in sort of late December 2009, saying, "Would you be interested in doing the bass job in the King Singers?" And I thought, this is this is the weirdest email I've ever received. Uh, <laughs> sure, sure, why not? And so I was, he put my name forward and then I sort of got an email through um, from the, the King Singers team in early 2010. And then I did the normal auditions like everyone else. Anyway, that's, that's it was a long-winded way of saying I got there in a completely roundabout, unexpected way, um, but was chosen. I actually, it was... I think it was on Wednesday, it was the 20th. I, I was chosen as the Basin Kings because on May the 20th, 2010. So basically exactly 10 years ago. And I started oh my gosh. In, in October. Hence, hence the wine. <laughs> hence the wine. Well, cheers to that. So you've talked about being accepted into the King Singers and the kind of whirlwind journey of that. Yeah. What is it like being part of a small group like the King Singers? What, what I love most, I think, is that we're, a, you know, from a business point of view, we're a partnership. So... No one, mm-hmm. we, have, we have agents and management all over the world, but ultimately the six of us are in charge of our business and we're all equally in charge. Mm-hmm. And that's, it's good from, you know, both as the junior member, when I arrived, obviously I was the newest. I've been in for the least amount of time and I was 30 years younger than the guy who was oldest in the group and I was 20 years less experienced than the person who'd been in the group the longest. Yes. So there's a huge kind of generation divide, um, even though we were all very close friends. There was actually just a, Sidetrack. I'd been obsessed with age as a child. So I remember when I arrived in the group and having like an equal colleague who was who was 54 when I was like 23 or 53 when I was 23. Mind boggling at first. And it's what I've loved over the last 10 years is becoming totally comfortable with people who are 70 and people who are 20 being completely equal with you. And I find it particularly easy now looking down at like 22 year olds and thinking like, I don't feel older than you. So why should, why? No, exactly. So yeah, why did I have all those weird feelings when I was 22? Anyway, I digress. I love that we're a partnership, um, and yes, being being equal means that when you when you arrive, of course, you have an equal say. But now also, I'm the most senior. We're quite a young group. Like I'm 33. I'm not quite the oldest, but I'm the longest serving. So I've been in, as I say, for very nearly 10 years. And um, all the people who have joined recently, so the most recent members joined in January 2019, are all equal as well. So everyone brings a huge amount of energy of. Um, of themselves to what we do because what they think matters you know how it's and it's everything from the from the musical from being in rehearsals and they're not being a musical director and everyone chipping in with what they think is valuable and everyone of course has their specialisms so we, we all benefit from that um but also you know in terms of actually managing a business you know as i say we we, we do have management agencies but ultimately you know we need to control everything from our cash flow to um, you know, what our creative projects are to how we program to, um, you know, what we put on our socials, all of those things. I think it would be much harder to create a, a really, really kind of efficient, optimized group of workers if there was a hierarchy and there, there isn't one. And that's really cool. So I, that's, I think my favorite thing. Being uh, an integral part of such a small ensemble, I'm guessing everyone has a sort of certain role to play, to fulfill. You know, someone might be the fun one or the sensible one or the party animal or something like that within the six of you. What role do you think you play? Uh, so I'm, I'm always 
Uh, so I'm obsessed with Myers-Briggs personality typing. Have you ever done yours? No. Okay, you need to do it. There's a great website. Everyone who's listening, 16personalities.com. It's free. It's 100 questions. And like, I don't think that personality typing is, is everything. I think that obviously we're much more complex than a set of numbers or letters to define us. Yeah. But I think it's a really, really interesting way to, to look into... To, to you know how different people operate and how you can get the most out of a, a kind of a team dynamic with different kinds of people within it. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I one of the things that I love is having a really really strong overview of everything that's happening. So to, to really kind of go ten thousand feet above what's happening and to see like oh I see what the the the, the interplay is between what we're doing over here and what we're doing over here and I understand the complete network of our relationships with our management teams and our fans and various other people our, our record labels blah blah blah. I, that I love. Um, and I'm also naturally a really risk prone person. I sort of, I feel very, and it's probably because I sort of, I, I had very supportive parents and I grew up in a very, very safe environment. I grew up on a campus boarding school where like not much could go wrong because my dad taught there and it was safe and you could go out and be free. So I, you know, I, I haven't grown up with this kind of any kind of existential angst about things going wrong, which, <laughs> which you know, yeah. some people do for, for very, very good reason. Um, and, you know, as a consequence, I'm always the person I feel that's saying like, okay, well, let's, let's give it a go. Let's try. And like, if you did that, if you did that for every project, it will be a nightmare. You need people within any group that are are the people who are really careful, say, with the purse strings or with our capacity or um, with our reputation, whatever. I care enormously about all of those things, but I'm probably the first one to say, like, the trade-off could be amazing if. Well, I think it's quite funny to, to, to be that person and also to be the person who is has been in the group the longest because often you have this kind of paterfamilias role kind of with someone who's been in a in a... A community for a long time who sort of says like oh okay I'm a bit more settled a bit more grounded and I feel like I'm the opposite I feel like I'm the dog kind of yapping the whole time and be like oh let's try that let's try this let's try that um bright-eyed and bushy-tailed yeah till the last day yeah which is funny because I feel yeah I feel like a very small yappy dog and yet I'm sort of six foot five and very long-limbed and <laughs> <laughs> so obviously as such an internationally renowned ensemble the King Singers tours a huge amount um, from my experience of touring around the world with different ensembles, I know that every tour is obviously completely different. Some are really gruelling with 4am starts and incredibly late concerts uh, with no sleep, long coach journeys, etc. And then some are obviously the dream where you arrive the day before, you can acclimatise, you rehearse, the hotel has a spa. Um, what would you say your average touring day looks like on either a very good or a very bad day? <laughs> Okay, so that's it's interesting to say because I mean we, one of the things about us is that we like our diary is so concert heavy. Like the, the balance of what we do is so heavily weighted towards um, concerts, and because because yeah, it's it's kind of recital driven. Yeah. So sort of one concert in one place, move to the next place, rather than kind of longer projects you might do. We we are in control of our diary, right? So we we can say this this is good, this is not good, but we also have to balance, kind of like everyone, you know, tricky kind of scheduling difficult travel with the fact that we don't want to be away from home forever. You know what I mean? So we have a limit on touring for three weeks at a time. And usually if we're just in Europe, we'll try and make it shorter than that. So people come home sort of for a few days every week or week and a half or something. So, and then we have these long holidays, right? So I think a good day within a kind of, so, so we're in an American trip, which is busy, 
and and so like I think there's a Christmas tour we did a few years ago, which was 16 shows in 19 days, and oh each of them was in a different city, right? Yeah. So it's four four concerts on one day off, four concerts on one day off, four concerts on one day off, four concerts, right? A good day would involve waking up probably at around six thirty, getting 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 breakfast. I'm I'm obsessed with eating breakfast. I never ever miss breakfast. Um, it's really interesting. It's like I. I never. I always used to skip it, and my well-being is enormously improved by having it. So I always have breakfast, and then probably leaving around seven thirty. I've packed the night before after I've got back from the concert. Um, apart from the things which I really need in the morning, um, leave at about seven thirty. Probably get to the airport. I don't know eight thirty. Flight at ten. Let's say you land at twelve in the next place. You get to your hotel by like one one thirty. Time for some lunch head to the concert hall, which is hopefully very close, hopefully a walk away. We schedule two hours for rehearsal every day. Mm-hmm. We don't always use that. And like, um, we're always like pretty far advanced. So we're not, we're never rehearsing really stuff for that night. It's always stuff for projects in the future. So rehearse maybe 3.30 to 5.30, two hour break, dinner, no meeting, whatever. Um, just, just time for yourself to kind of declutter your brain. Concert, say 7.30, meet fans after the concert, we always sign, always meet people after concert. Yeah. Finish it, maybe, maybe leave the venue between ten fifteen and ten thirty. Back at the hotel by eleven, asleep by eleven thirty. So and like so, I at home I'm religious about getting eight hours sleep. On tour, if I can get eight hours sleep, I do. Um, but seven hours is fine when I'm, I'm away. But I'm very very strict about it. Um, I think I mean you you know this probably as a, a violist and a singer. Like I don't know how you're. Um, how sleep affects you in different ways. Like if you're singing, I find that like it's obviously you can't you you like if the muscles are tired or the body is tired, there's very little you can do about it. Um, if your brain is tired, you'll probably work on autopilot, provided you haven't like compromised yes. yourself in some stupid way the, the night before. So yeah, um, like if you need to do, I mean, occasionally of course we do have nights which are like four hours, and you can survive that for like one night max two, and then you need to reset. Um, the final other thing is that you will like, yeah, if we have, if we have a day we've arrived somewhere the day before, we usually meet that morning. So we can kind of do our businessy stuff in the morning and then everyone gets on with their stuff. Yeah. That's like, that would be like a good regular day. Like the bad days are of course the ones where you get up at like five and you have, I think the worst we've ever done. Three flights in a day and then a coach journey and then. A coach journey, a workshop, a rehearsal and a concert, which is start, which starts at like nine and then you and then you have a reception afterwards with dinner and then you get and then you're like i i, I don't know how this, <laughs> who, who thought this was okay i've been there and yeah. done that it's always in italy isn't it in italy the concert starts at like 10:30 p.m. and then you have a reception in like the town hall with the mayor and a four course meal and then you're in bed at 4 <laughs> and then you're up at five. I know it's yeah, it's yeah. it's terrible. I mean, that's really interesting to hear that you're so disciplined. I find that when I'm going on tour, um, it's it's difficult to know what to do and how to pace oneself depending on how long the tour is. So, I suppose if you do have a three week tour, you know that you've got a number of nights to go out and have a drink after a concert and celebrate or whatever. Yeah. Um, but it's also sensible to try and get enough sleep. For me, it's finding the balance between both of them I find that when I've come off stage you know let's say you've been playing at the I don't know La Scala or Concert Cabal or something like that there's sort of you know such a huge buzz in the audience and you're fueled on adrenaline I just I can't go to bed I have to sit and chat and I love the process of an after the concert sort of ruminating on 
memories and things that have happened. Yeah. Or just saying, oh my God, that was an awful day. Let's just have a, <laughs> a large drink. <laughs> See, I'm, what, I, what, what it's interesting, because I love that. And like, I... I um, I think when I started in the group, I was very much the kind of I need a drink to unwind. What's interesting now is that the group, the group is, I wouldn't say we're boring, but like we're, we're, we're like almost like worryingly disciplined for a group of men whose average age is 30. Like the group, mm. I, I will very happily drink like once on a tour of three weeks um, and then make up for it when I'm home. Cheers. Yeah. Um, but like um, <laughs> the... I, I think I I certainly you know for me something which is really important when I'm at home is an exercise like I'm a mm-hmm. I'm a spin fanatic I don't know if you might be able to see if I move I my can camera, see your you spin would, bike right there my spin bike <laughs> right in the in the, you know by the mirror like it's in my bedroom during lockdown like I think knowing knowing that obviously that part of your life is pretty compromised like however good you can be like if you have one of those crazy days you go up at 4 30 there is no there is no 10 minutes even that you could go to the gym or anything like that nor do you really no. want to you've got to conserve energy like so for me kind of i in order to feel balanced in my body and in myself i sort of i'm like okay i'm going to kind of stave off the vices until i can um until i can return to to sort of my home and have more balance again between like kind of the, the the good for me physically and the maybe slightly detrimental but also good for my soul and spirit and stuff um, of course it's just about balance isn't it you've obviously got such a full diary with with traveling um and touring and i know that when i've been away for three weeks i'm just sort of desperate to get home nest cook see friends um rest do you often travel more once you finish a tour on your own or do you come back? Are you strike me as the kind of person who might have a bit of a travel bug? I, I do, I do. I mean, what's interesting at the moment is that I'm, I've, I've never lived by myself really and I'm, I'm looking later, like in the next few months to get my first place by myself and I'm really, the thing which has really inspired it is the desire to nest, to like buy a sofa that is mine, to like buy a table that is mine. You know, I've never done that before. I've just sort of inherited the things that have come with the places where I've lived. And to me, I wonder whether it marks a turn. I, I sort of, I, I sort of, I, I wouldn't say I've been reckless necessarily as a young adult, but I've maybe done it the other way around. Now, the, the older I get, the more I, I do want to still go to like New York all the time. I love it and I, I as I, I went for the first time I was 22 I probably to be like 35 times now it's nuts like having done so much travel now I don't feel like I need to complete the globe by the age of 35 in a way I think I I was sort of on a trajectory to do that and it's actually no no I, I do have the rest of my life to keep doing these things and actually like wouldn't it be lovely to feel really grounded in a place that was your own here in London so I I do have a travel bug but I think I'm, I'm learning to temper it. So it's, I have a slightly more measured year. Yeah, you're trying to treat it a little bit. Keep it under wraps. <laughs> um, so if you go backstage before a concert, I mean, certainly in the instrumental world, everyone is either eating bananas, downing coffee, doing yoga, dousing themselves with essential oils um, or something mad like that. It's a strange array of activities that go on between an instrumentalist before going on stage. Do you have a pre-concert routine either you know, on your own or with the rest of the group? So I I love being in my own dressing room. I know that sounds really silly because we I, I love and know the other guys so, so much and so well. Um, 
I I don't really have nerves anymore before performing, which is a terrible thing to admit. And that's that's because I, I don't want it to sound like I'm sort of arrogant. It's going to be good enough. But I think I've had I've, I've done over a thousand concerts now. And even when I thought I completely lost my voice, like I, you know, there were concerts last year. I had a polyp taken out, for instance, over New Year last year. And there were concerts last year where I was really, really struggling. And even then you listen back to the recording and you think, wow, the King Singers, my colleagues are so good at doing what they're doing that you can't tell as you know, from a recording. Yeah, which is amazing. And they were so good to me and so kind. So I sort of know that if the group is doing what it does well, which I believe it is at the moment, I I am well supported. So I don't, I don't feel nervous. I don't feel the need to kind of pour through all my music um, or kind of, you know, practice announcements from memory. Like I, I feel I'm confident enough in that from having done it for a decade. Um, I I guess the, the, the key mantra I always have with performing is like the audience wants you to have a good time. The audience like wants, they want you to deliver what you've said you'll deliver, but they, they ultimately, if, if you're having fun, they're much more likely to have fun. So I kind of just try and put myself in a position before a concert where I'm in a really good mood. Now I'm pretty buoyant anyway, but what does that mean? It usually means singing along to kind of trashy pop music in my living room, playing on, or in my dressing room, playing on Spotify or whatever. Um, and so, some of my colleagues do find it a bit peculiar. Like they sort of want stillness and focus. Um, but I don't find that it distracts me. It's not, it's not that I'm not focused. It's just kind of me preparing myself in the way where I feel I can give my best to the audience. It's pretty, it's pretty unusual. I realise that. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, something different works for everyone, I think. Um, obviously, you've done so many incredible concerts over the last few years. And I know for me, the success of a concert is dependent on so many things like levels of tiredness, location, feeling well, the audience plays a huge role in that as well. But do you have any that have really jumped out at you as being really unique in some way? I mean, yeah, I mean, there are loads and there, there are some from a kind of just a, a location point of view and you'll have the same thing. Like, I can't believe I'm performing here. Like, I remember I remember standing on the stage at the Sydney Opera House for the first time in 2012, I think, and thinking I just can't believe I'm here and of course there's only six of you yeah. on stage like it's it's vast for a tiny ensemble like that so it, that, that's crazy and that's of course true that's true of the Concert of the Royal Albert Hall um I think what what I always love um is going to places where other people can't really go like one of the things I, I really adore about being in the King Singers is that kind of I imagine it's like being in a quartet as well but yeah you need you need so little infrastructure to put a King Singers concert on um, like you basically need a room with a light switch like <laughs> music stands is ideal so we can do some of our music but like because because the, the barriers to having us are low I think we can go to places that lots of people can't go to so I think recently I, I loved going we went to Pristina the capital of Kosovo last year amazing and like I'd never been to Kosovo and it was their they think it was, it was their second ever Pristina International Vocal Festival and it's just you know the concert itself was lovely. It sort of was an ordinary concert, but yeah, the audience, the kind of the feeling of like, we've never had this before and now we've got this, is a, it, that's astonishing. And, and, and just being, you know, we've all got plenty of friends who travel for work. For me, it's, you know, whether they're bankers or lawyers or, you know, other kinds of entertainers, but they go to different places. Um, and for me, it's like going to these very unusual places. Like, so that was a very good one. Um, Geographically, I remember we've done some extraordinary ones, like up in the northern territory, the northwest territories of Canada. Um, we went to the we went to the capital up there. It's called Yellowknife, 
um, and it was minus 70 degrees and um, you know like we, we sort of drove on ice roads and like sort of n n seeing the northern lights in Canada which you forget you can do um, so like for, for me those are the memories I have one very I think one of the things which made me cry really made me cry um, was doing a workshop actually in Beijing I think it was maybe in 2014 and obviously there's a very, very strong division between church and state in China. Like you absolutely, like you can't do the Messiah anywhere, for instance, because it's religious music. Um, and we were, it was, we were given special permission or rather a workshop was given special permission by the Chinese government to take, to take place in the Wangfujing Cathedral right in the middle of Beijing. And three Chinese choirs sang sacred music to us in the cathedral. And I just thought like, holy cow, like this, this just doesn't happen. Like we're, this is so special. And you know, people in these, yeah, these people in these choirs are crying as well because they don't get to perform this music. And they, that, the, the, the cathedral's usually locked. It's completely closed to anyone else going in. So like that, that kind of experience is something I remember forever. Um, now in terms of picking repertoire for a tour, I imagine if you've just recorded an album, then a lot of the material will be actually from that disc, like a new Beyonce album or something like that. Um, but are there ever concerts and tours which are a little bit more sporadic in terms of repertoire? And is there ever room on a concert tour to change what you're doing mid-tour? Oh, completely. I mean, so because we do, I mean, an average year is probably 120 concerts. Like we deliberately don't mm -hmm. just have one programme for the whole year because I think we'd go crazy. Um, mad yeah I mean literally mad um, and also I think you know one of the things that the King Singers historically have cultivated is an audience in loads of different kinds of spaces so you know we have we do a lot of concerts in kind of provincial German festivals and beautiful churches where a very different program is appropriate to something you do in like a very modern concert hall in Taipei for instance or Korea or whatever so I think like the, the, the and, and that happens within countries as well you know different um different presenters want different things from the King Singers. And so you 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 kind of, while you always want to give a, a diverse set of repertoire, because that's, I think, one of the King Singers' USPs, you, you do want to tailor it slightly to what kind of each individual presenter-promoter audience wants. So in, in a normal season, we'll probably have like six key programmes that we're offering to everyone, and then we'll tailor those and do bespoke ones as well. So we'd like... There's, there's always variation. And then in the second half of every concert, I mean, I say every, like 95% of concerts, we don't program the second half of the second half. Sometimes the whole second half, it's just like the King Singers will do a set of like arrangements chosen specifically for this evening. And we'll usually decide those on the day, even after the first half, once we've gauged the audience and worked out what we think they'll respond to best. So that means that, and, th and that's usually all from the memory bank. So it's really spontaneous and kind of that's engaged. amazing just kind of feeding to the audience and being you know right we need to perk them up or oh they're, they're very enthusiastic tonight let's let's do some more calm music or or something like that that's really amazing and um you do a lot of your singing off by heart especially the second half of each concert as you said um how much of the repertoire will you will you do off by heart? And um, so the King Singers Library is a, like somewhere between three thousand three thousand five hundred pieces. Like and and obviously we don't sing them all at any given time. Like th that would be nuts. Um, I'd say that of that rep, I mean this is a really rough guess. Like thirty percent is music that you would perform from memory, and we don't have all of that from memory. I I think 
ideally, like I've been in the group for a lot longer than some of the others, so I will know more than some of my colleagues, but I probably know, I've got, off the top of my head, somewhere between 400 and 500 pieces from memory. But then there are, you know, I think within the group right now, we probably have like 60 or something that we can just like drop it. Yeah. So, uh, and that's, I mean, that's brilliant. That's exciting. Um, we, I, I suppose, ideally, we, you, I mean, you, you're always trying to build that, um, but also make it cyclical. So, you know, like there, there are certain pieces we haven't sung for years, which we're now singing, and then we'll sing them for, you know, a few years and then give them a rest again and get more out of the library. It's the joy of having so much music that we can sing. You know what I mean? You can really, you can really um, kind of like circulate through or cycle through rep without ever getting bored of stuff or repeating yourself too often. Also, do you have any tips for people who might be looking to improve their learning skills off by heart? So I was a very weird child. I was, I think I mentioned earlier, I grew up with a half sister, but I never lived with her. So I was basically an only child at home. And my dad, as well as being a teacher, uh, was kind of, my parents were very religious. My dad's now a vicar. And um, we went to church every, every weekend. And I learned hymn books from memory from the age of three. I had a little kind of kiddie crafts tape recorder and some headphones. And I had all the like the junior praise and mission praise tapes. And I learned the whole hymn book. I mean, really the whole hymn book. Um, all of, and, and I could I could recite you every verse, every number, sing you sing you every tune, um, and I um, did that by just listening and listening and listening over and over and over again. Like, and I wasn't obviously thinking about it at age three, like when I started. I just that was I learned to read early, and then I that was how I occupied myself. Um, and so now I find that if I want to learn something, I just I I. I do what I did then. I listen to something just over and over again on my headphones with the music. I've got a reasonably, I don't have a photographic memory, but I've got a very good visual memory so I can remember what the score looks like. And it doesn't take me very long. Um, I think particularly because I've learned, you know, words, you know, verses of literally thousands of hymns as a child, learning words doesn't take me a very long time. So it's just the case of working out where my part fits in the harmony. And I think my, my best advice would be Try and when you had to learn your first music as a child or when you started learning music and you weren't necessarily that good at sight reading, how did you remember? And then revisit that method. Your newest album with the King Singers is Finding Harmony, which launched in 2020. I really love the concept behind the disc and how it relates to sort of joining together different nations and cultures and causes. And also how music stands as a harmonious channel for doing so throughout time. Have you got a particular favourite on this track? So, I, I mean, I've got a few. I mean, the album is so special because we worked with just experts from all over the world. Like, you know, the, when you're doing an album like Finding Harmony and you're taking music that belong to so many different cultures, like, mm-hmm. you need to be very... This is all about celebrating the power that music's had, not trying to say, like, aren't we good at singing it? Like, it's... Right. This is all... This is, so, kind of appropriation is absolutely not what the aim is. So you're working with all of these kind of real experts in there in their fields, you know, people who, who, when they're arranging, really sort of belong to the stories from which the music comes and really understand the language and the, the craft. I've, I've got maybe three favourites. I actually think they might be the first three tracks on the album, which is not intentional. I mean, I was integral in ordering the album, but um, there's one which is very special to me um, called Stremlin Feigl, which is a Yiddish song. Um, that was arranged by a friend of ours called Toby Young, and it's a song that was sung as a lullaby to children in kind of um, 
Jewish ghettos in the Second World War. Um, to, to kind of to, and and you know often these are children who had been orphaned because their parents have been shot. This one specifically relates to a shooting that happened outside what is now modern day Vilnius, and it's incredibly moving, incredibly beautiful, and it resonates a lot with me because my grandmother fled as an Austrian Jew to London in 1939. So like I I feel a real identity with that, um, and then um, I love you know the music of the civil rights movement. It's is is extraordinary, and again like it's that's really challenging as a, a very white male English group to um, kind of sing music and, and try and celebrate music that absolutely belongs to a moment, a similar moment in black history, not in white history. And to to say like, you know, this is not us trying to claim it, but just saying like how amazing this is. And we worked with um, kind of an African-American composer, a ranger called Stacey Gibbs, who loves the King Singers, but also, whose parents were also um, campaigners for civil rights for black Americans in the 1960s. Um, and he he was telling me like when he was arranging the three songs that he did for this album all from the civil rights movement he was crying as he was doing them he was crying them when he heard them um, and that my favorite of the three is is um, if I can help somebody which is I think one of Martin Luther King's favorite hymns um, and it was originally written by a woman called Alma Androzzo but it was I mean it's it's so beautiful um, and it just makes me cry like and you the first time we performed it in the states we performed it I think in Mississippi you know in a place where there were so many people who were slaves and people crying in the audience white people black people I mean that's amazing to me um, so th those are a couple of my favorites and then the last one is this track One Day which I think you've heard as well um, I absolutely love that track I was listening to it today and um, I just it's arranged by Richard Rodney Bennett is yeah. that correct oh he's a genius and yeah I just I just love the close harmony that's used and how it's all almost sort of in a theme theme of variations or kind of rondo structure the whole mm -hmm. thing um and it's a mixture between sort of really warm kind of cheesy Christmas a cappella feel with this glorious undertone of kind of quiet intellect and focus it's just this this beautiful combination I'm going to use that as literally the selling line for that track. Like anytime <laughs> I'm being like, my friend Davina said, and she was right. Um, yeah, it's it's this amazing Michelle Legrand song, which was arranged for us by Richard Rodney Bennett, who has written, wrote quite a lot of arrangements and original compositions for the King Singers and is, is just a genius. And he, yeah, chose this song, I think back in 1980, maybe even earlier, like I, sort of the mid-1970s, 1980s. It's one of the only old arrangements from the King Singers on the album. And it, like, it's just, it doesn't relate specifically to Finding Harmony in the sense that it's not about a particular moment in history, but just, I mean, like, even now during the pandemic, like, you know, one day the fields will be cleaner, one day the sky will be bluer. Like, you know, the idea that like, we, we, we can live in hope because there will be a, a beautiful and bright tomorrow, even if we can't see it now. Like, I just, I find it so moving. And I also just think, you know, that there are, there are so many brilliant choral composers, of course, but for me in the king singers like what really marks out an excellent arrangement an excellent arranger for us is someone who really understands how to write for the specific voice part or write for voices like what what is it that makes a beautiful line to sing what is it that like um allows us to do justice to the richness of the harmony like and you know someone like richard rodney bennett you know even though he was like also you know like a film composer whatever like the idea that he could just understand such meticulous writing or like just execute such meticulous writing for such small forces is just amazing to me so I this track one day I just think is 
like the perfect example of how to craft something for a small ensemble like ours. I completely agree. So to listen to Johnny and the King Singers performing one day from their album Finding Harmony, please go to the Spotify link which will take you to the playlist for today's episode of The Classical Corner. Is there any repertoire that you have a burning desire to sing which you haven't yet covered, either just for fun or in The King Singers? Oh, my word. Do you know what? I think in The King Singers, no. In, in, in that, like, I'm always surprised by, by new material, but, like, I, we would get such a breadth of rep that I, I um, don't feel the need to, like, necessarily expand in terms of genre. Like, I always want to kind of increase the canon and get new music to sing and hear new voices. But it's not that, like, oh, God, we The King Singers need to do, you know, like you know, more country or more rap or like whatever. King's Singers rap would be weird. But, you know, like there's, you know, <laughs> I think, you know, what we want to hear is more new voices. And if they feel moved to write something, which is a completely new sound world for us, that that would be amazing. But like, I don't feel that like a calling to get like a certain thing. Um, I What I miss as a performer is just the bigger choral works. You know, I, I remember... At New College, doing recordings of the Messiah and touring the John Passion and recording the Monteverdi Vespers. And like, I, you know, I don't want to do that every day. Um, but, you know, it would be lovely to do a Messiah at Christmas every so often or a John Passion at Easter. I mean, we're all going to want to do John Passions next year. I mean, every musician in the world, because none happened this year. You know what I mean? <laughs> because Easter was sort of cancelled. So that that's, I think, the one thing I miss. Um and, and I guess that's just, you know, where you come from. I, I went to a school, Christ Hospital, which has an amazing music department. But the chapel choir was 160 people, you know, so, which is not. Oh, my goodness. It's amazing to have such a, a large set of, like, a large force. Um, and, you know, it, it allows you to do some really special big things. Like, I couldn't do the close harmony repertoire I do now. I'd be way too complicated. But... You know, like, I, I strongly remember age 11 singing I Was Loud for the first time and thinking, like, wow, this is extraordinarily thrilling to be part of something so vast. I think also, I mean, as a violinist, I adore chamber music and I specialise in Baroque music now. And a lot of that is for very small forces. And that's where, you know, I really feel very connected to other musicians and the music, especially. But... I there's nothing quite like you know sitting in a huge symphony orchestra I would hate to do it every day but there's something about being part of this machine and being surrounded by this wall of sound um I've just come back from uh the states doing uh, a Beethoven symphony cycle as part of the Beethoven 250th anniversary with John Elliott Gardner and um Orchestre Revolutionaire Romantique and I mean just being part of that orchestra with such huge forces and feeling that energy, you know, from the other players, it is, you know, irreplaceable. It's just absolutely incredible. As much as I adore, you know, doing chamber music, you can't compare it. No, I, I, I and I, I really do feel that. Um, and I, I think, you know, we, we all talk about balance being the real thing that we crave. Like I, the older I get and the more that I don't feel the need to go out till, you know, like 5 a.m. every Saturday night, Actually, there's part of me when I have weeks at home that thinks I just want to go and sing in a local, lovely parish church in the choir and like sing the repertoire that like I can't I can't do for very good reasons. Like we don't have an organist, you know, like in, in the King Singers, you know. So yeah. Th- th- yeah. 
Absolutely. You've mentioned before that you love Messia. And of course, he's written a lot of glorious vocal music, such as O Sacrum Convivium. But it's his theme of variations, which you're particularly fond of. Is that right? Yeah. And this is a really funny story, which relates to, obviously, particularly to, to me and you. Um, I remember talking to you about National Youth Orchestra auditions when we were, I don't know, 17, when we first met. And this was a piece that I was playing at my audition and that you played at several auditions. And I loved it because I think at school, God, I'm going to sound like I'm blowing my own trumpet, I was by no means the best violinist or violist that had ever gone through my school at all. But in my year, I was. And so I I was playing repertoire that I, you know, I, I didn't really have benchmarks to set myself against. I didn't really know how good I was. Um, and I remember I remember talking to you about this piece and thinking like, okay, like this is, this, this, this done well will get you here or there. Tried and, and tested. I, I tried and tested. And I think what was really fascinating to me about particularly this piece is, is one, I, I didn't really know any other violin music like it. I'd, I'd been obsessed as you can, it's like, it's like being a teenage boy and wanting to, you know, have the best football boots or, you know, do, put in no work and be the best at, you know, maths in your class, whatever. I'd been the guy who's like for fun, just like played Sarasate, like encore pieces <laughs> all the time because I was like, oh, it's gonna look really cool if I can do loads of left arm pizzicatos or like, you know, like semi craver passages all in harmonics and like yeah. you know, whatever. But what I love about this piece of Messiaen is for me, it was like the most wonderful tool for like discipline, like at a really high level. It's like, it's, it's unusual to find anything by Messiaen, but it's, it's a, this amazing theme of variations which kind of tests everything that I think you would want to test from a from a, a budding young violinist like extraordinary like slow bow changes and like the ability to like judiciously use vibrato or not and like can you how much how much yeah bow control do you have how um how in a how quickly in a seven minute piece can you change the character of what you're trying to deliver in something that is sort of both tonal and weirdly atonal. Anyway, it was, it was like a, it was a real shifting point in my perspective on what it meant to be a good musician. When I sort of started approaching this piece in a, in a proper sort of, with a view to being bigger than my school instrumentalist way. Um, because I, I realized that a piece like this is what was actually going to challenge me to develop as a, as, as a musician, rather than simply just being like, can I get through this thing, which is impossibly hard. Yeah, I mean, I was listening to it today, and I've actually just recorded the theme, which I will be playing on the podcast later for you all. But um, I was thinking as I was as listening to this, it's just the most remarkable piece of writing. It's such a short work. And there are so many moods covered in such a short space of time. You have this theme, which is sort of focused and a bit spooky, um, really sinewy melodic line over the piano chords. And that, and all the movements are um, completely attacker into the other one. So then the variation one is very chromatic and windy with lots of sort of interplay between the violin and piano. And then you go straight away into this incredibly spiccato um, angular uh, second variation, which uses a huge range on the violin and the piano. Um, and then the third variation is very grandiose um, and a completely different use of bow stroke. So again, it's almost like a study book. It, it's a fun study. You've got, um, you know, you're going through all the all the motions that, as you say, are sort of required to be a good 
violinist or a good musician um obviously feeling and expression has to come in that as well um and then you know variation four is very sporadic but i think the you know the pièce de résistance is the final variation which is a kind of painfully slow rendition of the theme up the octave you need 20 bows per note um it's a kind of extraordinary um a challenge of endurance and um Uh, you feel almost sort of completely relieved and euphoric to get to the end of it. But it's this sort of whole journey that you go through almost a bit like a a walk. You know, you're over the smooth bit by the river, then you're climbing a mountain, and then you finally get onto the top of this plateau with this soaring melody, and it's kind of... You feel like you've done it. Exactly, but it's it's also weird in that, you know, unlike these weird Sarasati or, you know, Chrysler things, which are, like, very impressive just because, like it's all moving very fast. You realise that people who know and know how to play the violin will realise how difficult it is. And yet it's kind of the challenge is not like sheer pace. It's like, you know, mastery of things that are, you know, in principle, basic techniques. Like, do you have, can you sustain like a breathe at crotchet equals 40 with an even bow stroke? Like that, and I think that was the thing was like fundamentally changed my approach to like, what is impressive you know who what do you when you're when you're trying to give a sort of someone in the audience a good concert is it is it literally that the whole thing is fireworks or actually are the kind of the peaks and troughs of of a piece like that the thing that that will really kind of get them perhaps perhaps with a bit more time but more meaningfully absolutely i think you've hit the nail on the head there um so i'm now going to play you all a recording of the theme which I have made uh, of Messiaen's theme and variations. For those of you who haven't heard the piece in its entirety, I urge you to listen to Leila Josefowicz and John Novacek's album on Spotify. It is absolutely phenomenal. 
Now, Johnny, another piece you mentioned you'd love to touch on is Wesley's Thou Wilt Keep Him in Perfect Peace. Why does this resonate with you? So it resonates me with me for two key reasons. One, I remember singing it at New College and there was something very, very kind of... Um, I, there was a real sense of like arrival. I don't mean arrival in the sense of like I've made it, but like this is what this is what music can do, and I now understand it. Uh, we did it maybe in my first term at New College as a choral scholar, and I'd never I'd never been a choral scholar in such a formal setting. I was never a chorister or anything like that growing up. Um, and there's something very simple about the kind of Anglican, the 19th century Anglican writing. It's like it's it's straightforward. It's it's beautiful in a very tonal four four way. Um, and I, I thought it was, it was one of the very first pieces I had where it's like, this is just kind of purely soothing in a, in a completely un, um, unpretentious, like, un, um, or kind of, it wasn't overly wrought way. And, and I found it deeply, deeply moving. And I think there's also it kind of, like we were talking about with some of the Messian, there's, there's a real power in kind of the stillness of part of the piece, you know, like, so it's kind of reassuring chords and sort of, F sharp major for a long period of time by a beautiful kind of wholesome choir, but also nothing that is too, you know, a lot of 19th century or kind of um, Anglican choral music can be a bit sort of camp and pompy and this isn't that at all. So I remember it just being, again, again, a piece that wasn't kind of necessarily something that was viewed by many as the zenith of choral writing, but something that really spoke to me and it's kind of um, simple, but profound pleasures um but also um a f someone who's become a, a, a friend of mine is the composer judith bingham you know she lives down the road from me in london and she she wrote a piece for us last year and i i love talking to her because what she does is you know like so different most of the time to what we do what i do you know she writes kind of big complex pieces for organ that are that can be quite kind of mysterious and dark uh, and sometimes you would say doer in a in a kind of really sort of good musical way, but not necessarily easy way. Um, and she wrote a piece that precedes this Wesley called The Darkness Is No Darkness. Um, it must have been about 10 or 15 years ago. And they're meant to go as a pair. Um, so you, you're meant to perform her piece only when you perform the Wesley afterwards. Um, and what I love about it is it kind of, you know, I think about programming like an art exhibition when you're, um, you know, lots of people can... Um, Lots of people can kind of exhibit a piece and that's part of the joy. You know, if a piece goes from gallery to gallery, you're just giving people the opportunity to see it. But when each gallery takes a piece or, or a, a piece of art, it's how they put it in the context of other pieces of art. What goes next to it? What What's the order or the flow through the exhibition that gives you a different experience? And what there? enhances each piece by what it's being preceded or proceeded by? Exactly. And I, I clearly remember loving this piece by Wesley already and it, it, having the warmth I described to you before and I hadn't heard this the darkness is no darkness before but we were talking about working with Judith this is about two and a half years ago and I was on Oxford Street with my headphones in so it was a very loud place and they, they, they were little headphones whatever they weren't kind of big noise cancelling numbers and I was listening to the darkness is no darkness going into that will keep me perfect piece I think outside Selfridges and as we moved from one to the next I just immediately started crying, like just immediately. And like floodgates, not in the sense that I wasn't going through trauma at the time, but I was like, wow, this, it's amazing what you can do 
when you when you frame a piece in a slightly different way, like this piece, which already has so much meaning to me, has has acquired a whole new sense of purpose because of something else that someone else has done to it. And I think that that's what we should all be trying to do as kind of people who are programming classical music. Is like, how can you give amazing music from the past new meaning for the present? And like, that's what's happened here for me. So I, 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 I've heard this piece in an entirely new way now. And it, it's still so simple, but it's even more beautiful to me. That's absolutely amazing. And yeah, I love that. I mean, I was listening to it today. It's a completely glorious work. And I think it really encompasses everything I love about choral singing, you know, that comforting feeling. And as an ex-singer myself, I think, um, you know, it's the incredible homophonic writing, soaring lines, ethereal sopranos, dark passages, close harmony. And, you know, it's got that really, um, it's an ABA structure, which is just calming and comforting. And it's everything you would want from a beautiful choral work. Um, so I'll be very interested to listening listen to it um, after the Bingham piece as well. That's a great, a great thing. You'll be able to listen to Wesley's Thou Wilt Keep Him in Perfect Peace in the Spotify playlist for this episode of The Classical Corner. So, Johnny, what's your favourite music to listen to when you are not studying scores? Ooh, that's really, really tough. Um, I mean, I, I, I'm going to give you the terrible answer that I, you know, I like lots of things. I think we all do. Um, I, it depends what I'm doing. Um, I listen to, like, shameless pop music often when I'm kind of I, I'm going for long walks at the moment in the middle of the day just because I, I feel the need to move I'm sort of an extreme extrovert so I don't need to talk to lots of people but I need to walk outside and see people and, and I you know there's the sort of fun fun disco music you know fun fun kind of really peppy soul and and pop is just a really glorious thing right now especially as the sun's coming out more and so I, I do listen to a lot of that when I'm out and about um at home I vary if I'm working, um, I will listen to either a kind of industrious minimalist music. So um, I've sort of been re-exploring a lot of kind of percussion music, whether that's kind of um, Steve Reich or Philip Glass or stuff like that. Um, I, I love kind of contemporary folk music, um, which is something I never thought I would say. I thought I'd never be old enough to say that, and I really do love it. Um, Apart from that, I think, you know, when I'm working at home at the moment, when it's sort of long for, like, forward planning, um, I, I always have an eye to what would work well for us. And so I'm, it's a lot of kind of singer-songwritery stuff. Um, obviously, that means entirely different things, but it's usually someone playing their instrument as well as singing, whatever. So that, that, that can be anything from John Legend to Ben Platt to various other people. Um, but from a from from a classical music point of view, actually, it's I, I consciously listen to choral music because that's for me that's doing research. If I'm if I'm working and I want to hear something that brings me joy, I listen to a lot of the string music, the the smaller chamber ensemble string music that I played growing up. Um, and you know, like at the moment, of course, there's loads of Beethoven quartets. But I I think the stuff that I I love the most. Do you know what? I think Mendelssohn's string music is just like absolutely extraordinary. Like, it's just completely glorious. The octet especially. Oh my God. Yeah, yeah. And the opus 12 and 13 quartets are yeah. mind-blowing. The, the one the one which actually like both makes me cry and makes me dance around the kitchen is actually the third movement of the violin concerto. Um, oh yeah. Like obviously the first movement is super famous. It's absolutely gorgeous. But the third movement is just like, like by the end, I mean, you could... I, 
I, as I say, I'm both crying and I'm literally dancing around my kitchen. It's so euphoric. And, and I, I think it's really amazing. Like, it's like the end of, I never remember if it was rack two or rack three, but like by the time you're getting the piano concerto and like by the time you get to the end, it's like, it's just piled on and piled on and piled on. And you're basically like, you're clapping from like 30 seconds before the end of the piece. You know what I mean? It's like, it's that feeling as well. So I've, yeah, I've listened to a vast amount of Mendelssohn. Well, before we wrap up, I think it would be really lovely to look at another piece of your choice. Um, And I think you'd mentioned We Are from your 2017 album Gold, which I absolutely adore. I was listening to it today. I love all the percussive use of the voice and it's just completely glorious. Why is this an important piece for you? Uh, For me, it says everything that, like, I think we're trying to do as King Singers, as musicians, as people. You know, like trying to show that like music, one, can bind us together, but two, ultimately, that we're not that different. And if we can, if we can move, you know, with, in our small way, if we can move people with our music in, you know, in Africa, in Asia, in, in Europe, and those people can be moved by that music as well, like then there's hope, you know. And, and this, this, this piece sets an amazing poem called The Human Family by Maya Angelou, which is, you know, the, the kind of the, the mantra that runs throughout is we are more alike than we are unlike, my friends. And I think that when we had it written, um, it was it was with a mind to it being the opening track on our 50th anniversary album. And it opened basically every concert in our 50th anniversary year. And we did, we over 15 months, we did like 160 concerts on like like six continents. It was continents, it was nuts. And um, I think it's just, it's a wonderful exposition of, I think what we all stand for in a way that's really fun. Like if you had to describe it, you'd say, yes, it's choral, but it's also a pop song. It's also kind of a piece of close harmony. It's acapella music, it's sort of barbershoppy. It doesn't fit in a box. And I think that like the more we can do to defy boxes and say like, just if you like it, you like it. You don't have to justify why. That's that's incredibly powerful. So yeah, it's it's fun. And it's, it's both sort of profound and sort of frivolous. And I think just, you know, like embracing music like this rather than being scared of it because you don't know exactly what it is, is really important. So it, it was it was important to me. And the album was important not only because it was, you know, a consummation of what so many King Singers before us had done to get us where we were then, but also um, it was just a bit of a clang. It was, you know, my time first, my first time being nominated for a Grammy and it was the first, first, first track on that album. And like that, that was, you know, when the world, you know, in, in, not that the Grammys or awards mean anything or everything, but like, you know, when the world looks, when they, when they look back at you and they say, like, you're doing good, you're like, OK, thank you. I will remember that. Well, you can find We Are from the King Singers 2017 album Gold on the Spotify playlist for this episode of The Classical Corner. Johnny, it has been an absolute delight to chat to you this evening over Gin and Tonic. Thank you for sharing your wonderful stories and telling us all about your incredibly interesting and really quite amazing life. And I hope you have a super weekend and really look forward to chatting soon. I hope so too. Thank you so much for having me. Have a wonderful evening.